and welcome to another edition of Pathfinders, a podcast series from RBC Capital Markets that explores the fast-moving world of biotech and what the road ahead looks like for companies and investors in the sector. I'm Noel Brown, Managing Director, Head of Biotechnology Investment Banking here at RBC Capital Markets. In this episode, we will look at one of the biggest stories in today's IPO markets, the SPAC boom. SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, existed on the fringes of the financial world until a couple of years ago. But their popularity exploded last year, resulting in a 320% increase in the number of SPAC IPOs in 2020 over 2019. The boom shows no sign of slowing in 2021. SPAC IPOs are continuing to accelerate at a record-breaking pace, particularly in the biotech sector, which raises key questions for investors, sponsors, and corporates in the year ahead. So what's driving the SPAC boom? Is this a short-term craze or a lasting change? When is a SPAC the right or wrong choice for a biotech going public? And what's next for this alternative transaction structure? To help me join the dots on all of that, I'm joined by three of my colleagues, RBC Capital Markets, co-heads of SPAC coverage, Amir Imani and Michael Ventura, and Jason Levitz, our head of healthcare equity capital markets. So let's start with the fundamentals. Amir, what is a SPAC and how does it work? Thanks, Noel, and hello, everyone. So uh, a SPAC, in the simplest terms, is a blank check company. Uh, And how does a SPAC actually work? Well, a SPAC sponsor group will go ahead and form uh, or start the formation of a SPAC entity itself. The SPAC entity raised capital in the public markets by selling units, which consist of a common share plus some fraction of a warrant. Now, biotech-focused SPACs are a little bit unique uh, in that uh, there are several that are able to raise capital with just common shares only and do not offer, offer warrants. But typically, a unit will consist of a common share plus a fraction of a warrant, and they will sell that unit to investors that will pay $10 for that unit. That $10 is then taken and placed into a trust account that initially, up until a deal is announced, will effectively be a credit instrument because those investors have the ability to redeem their shares, their common shares, for their pro rata share of the cash and trust. So they can actually get their $10 back plus interest at the time of a deal closing if they do not feel that it's an attractive deal for them. Uh, And once a deal is announced, uh, it will trade more like the company itself is already public. And what I would say as well is that um, the reason these instruments have really uh, gained in popularity is partially because of the downside protection that's in there, plus the embedded call option from both the warrants uh, as well as the option that comes with having the shares and being able to stay in the transaction or redeem your shares for cash. What is fascinating to me is that we're, in, we're experiencing one of the most robust biotech IPO markets in history, uh, as Jason will attest to. Um, so why not simply go public via a traditional IPO? Well, a SPAC transaction offers a couple of distinct advantages. We'll, we'll talk about it generally and then address the biotech uh, industry specifically. A non-biotech company or any other company can achieve certain benefits by going public via SPAC. And these include the ability to market off of projections. Keep in mind that a SPAC transaction is technically a merger. So the SPAC entity is public and it's acquiring a public, a private company. And when it does that, it files an S4, which is different than an S1. In the S4, you're able to go ahead and include forward-looking numbers, 
and the management of the private company and the SPAC sponsor team are able to go ahead and talk about those projections freely. That is different in a regular way IPO process where the management team will file an S1, and the S1 is a historical looking document, so historical financials are there. And then uh, they also provide projections, but the projections are provided to the research analyst community, and the research analyst community forms their own opinions and their own projections, and they'll be the ones to communicate their views of the company to public investors. So that's one difference, being able to go ahead and market off of your own projections. The second difference is the process mechanics and the point at which you receive valuation certainty. So in a regular way IPO, uh, you won't know the valuation until after the book building process. So you'll launch the IPO, you will have several days of marketing, you'll build up an order book, and then your advisors, your underwriters, will take a look at order book, we'll see what the demand is, and we'll price the transaction based off of that demand. In a SPAC transaction, you're effectively getting valuation certainty earlier in the process. And that's done through a combination of, of negotiating with the SPAC sponsor, with you, and then having a market check or validation of the structure and valuation when you go out and try and raise the pipe. So that's another big difference. Um, there are some timing differences. Uh, in some instances, a SPAC transaction can be quicker. And another difference is sometimes a SPAC sponsor uh, can provide uh, additional market credibility or what we like to refer to as a halo effect. Because of their reputation, they're able to go ahead and provide additional validation to, to the company as well. There's some benefits. That SPAC sponsor group might actually also have operational expertise and can help the private company um, accelerate its growth or find new opportunities. In the biotech space specifically, one of the benefits can be the ability to compress the crossover round with the IPO in one step. A lot of the biotech-focused uh, SPACs are raised by uh, uh, very prominent uh, investors in, uh, in crossover rounds. Um, and you, instead of having a two-step process, you could potentially go ahead and compress it uh, into one but I'll turn it over to, to Jason for his thoughts as well. Thanks, Amir. I guess I'd make a couple of points. I think and the first is to your comment about compressing the, the crossover to IPO path, because that's so well-trod in biotech, as the listener group knows, roughly 80% of, of all biotech IPOs have what we'll call a crossover round ahead of the IPO. Um, and because of the, those rounds and because those investors typically anchor the IPO in the traditional route, uh, there is perhaps a, a bit more valuation certainty or at least visibility around the IPO outcome than there might be for an IPO in another sector without a crossover and a fully covered book at launch. So I think that's one consideration to balance um, when you consider the traditional route versus the SPAC route. Uh, the second is around validation. And it's no coincidence if you look at the roughly 30-odd biotech-focused stacks, many of them are sponsored by those same investors that lead crossover rounds and provide that third-party validation that broader group of public investors are looking for. So as you think about the traditional crossover to IPO path versus the SPAC path, one consideration obviously is the sponsor you're working with in the SPAC, their ability to drive 
uh, a syndicate of demand around uh, a potential pipe and, and providing that, that third-party validation and valuation visibility uh, that you'll get as well potentially through the crossover to IPO pass. If I may jump in, it's, it's Mike Ventura. I, I think Jason and Amir are highlighting um, two really critical points that, that we might have an opportunity to amplify here. You, you touched on just how hot the biotech IPO market is. I mean, case in point, you know, we're seeing folks who are drivers of sort of that crossover capital start their own SPACs uh, effectively, you know, to amplify uh, the economics that they can achieve being sort of an anchor investor. Uh, you know, obviously the, the founder economics of a SPAC um, provide some unique benefits that if you have expertise in a given discipline like biotech can be really powerful and they're using these vehicles um, you know, to, to go out and, and make acquisitions. It, it is an exceptionally competitive market from an institutional investor standpoint right now. And, you know, there are only so many ways to generate differentiated alpha in the marketplace and, and SPAC pipes are a really unique way to be able to do that. So I think for our institutional investor community, this has been uh, a phenomenal opportunity to showcase their expertise in a given discipline, uh, partner uh, with both SPAC sponsors uh, and assets that are targets of SPACs, as Amir highlighted, you know, via the pipe process and sort of the tri-party negotiation forum, um, and really end up effectively pricing an IPO of a very high quality to a group of 20 or 30 institutional investors versus the regular way IPO process where you're competing for those same dollars with hundreds, if not more, uh, of your institutional investor uh, peers or competitors. So you've all raised some interesting points here because one of the benefits that people market the concept of a SPAC with is a lesser level of dilution because you're not having to go through the crossover round dilution and then on top of that being diluted at the IPO level. But if I'm hearing you correctly, um, while you have that direct negotiation be between um, target and sponsor, and there's obviously, you know, there's dilution in that transaction, there potentially is additional dilution because I'm also layering on a pipe. So am I really avoiding dilution? So what I would say to that, one, first and foremost, uh, you have to take a look at each specific situation and determine uh, what the valuation is and uh, at the crossover round phase, what it would be, how much of a step up you would get in the IPO and factoring the IPO discount as well to get the holistic view of what that transaction costs are, both direct cash out the door costs as well as the implied costs from the discounts to valuation. In a SPAC transaction, uh, you obviously have the founder's shares, the founder's economics. And in some instances, you have warrants as well that are outstanding. Those are two different points of dilution that we need to factor in. Um, when it comes to the pipe, the pipe is coming in at $10 per share, which is where the most SPACs are, are priced at and where they announce deals at. Um, and that $10 is basically the equivalent of the value which you would be going public at. Uh, effectively. So there isn't any incremental dilution from, from, from that perspective. They're not, the pipe investors are not coming in to a discount. Uh, so they're not coming in at a crossover value. They're coming in at the IPO transaction value. That's the way I think about it. 
but the other points of dilution are real. The founder shares are real. So you need to balance you need to balance those various considerations. Maybe just to, to look at the other side of the coin, because while dilution is absolutely an important consideration, the other side is is the company in either path funded to a point where they're well positioned to execute on their pipeline in the public markets. And if you think back to the more traditional like, alternative to an IPO was the reverse merger. And many of those companies, while completing successful transactions, were public market listed, but didn't have the capital they needed. And a bit of an overhang around financing was created very quickly in the company's public life. Whereas in the IPO process today, companies are typically very well funded to the tune of let's say two to three years of, of cash post IPO. And as Amir mentioned, with the pipe process, what we found in many of the SPAC transactions in biotech is these companies are also very well funded, which positions them well from a public market standpoint. There's no financing overhang. Uh, they're well funded with strong shareholder basis. So I think while certainly uh, dilution in, in either path is an important consideration, just as important for companies in this sector is ensuring that the company is appropriately capitalized once it's in the public market. And one thing that all three of you have talked about is uh, the timeline and the, and the order of events, right? With the traditional IPO, if I analogize it to cooking, right, we go and gather a bunch of ingredients, lay them on the counter, we start mixing, stirring, cooking, and then we sort of sit down to eat, right? Um, which is the kind of big roadshow ultimately leading to pricing. Whereas with the SPAC, there seems to be a main course and dessert, and then we kind of go back and, and, and do all the other tasks and almost a, uh, you know, a back-end loading of some of the heavy lifting with legal and accounting. Um, that timeline, though, with um, traditional IPOs does create a lot of market risk. Are we somehow saving ourselves from that with the SPAC? I think from a timeline perspective, uh, if the company's at a stage where it's about to start its S1 drafting and at the same time decides to launch a process to identify SPAC to go public with, to merge with, if that's a starting point, then the SPAC timeline and an IPO timeline are basically right on top of each other from when you'll actually go ahead and close the transaction. The difference is in the SPAC process, you'll get to a point of valuation certainty faster because what you are doing is you're running a process, you're negotiating with the SPAC sponsor, you're raising the pipe, and that could be done fairly quickly and you'll lock in valuation certainty in sometimes as little as two to three months. Whereas in the regular way IPO, if that valuation certainty isn't achieved until after you launch the IPO. One thing I would add, I think, is the, the one um, aspect of the process uh, that tends to get uh, discounted, uh, quite quite frankly, you know, and over the course of the first, call it three to four quarters of life as a pro forma, um, as the pro forma company, excuse me, um, there really is quite a bit of institutional investor outreach that that management should be uh, focused on, you know, IR, uh, corporate access, really a high level of, of institutional engagement to really begin that ownership transformation uh, from the, the mix of, again, uh, SPAC IPO buyers, pipe buyers, to something that looks much more akin to the publicly traded uh, comps. 
uh, I think you know that that one aspect, the back end work in terms of institutional shareholder engagement, uh, is one that's that's worth highlighting. One thing I also want to add to that is that's actually a positive in my mind. Um, the greater level of institutional engagement from the time you announce the deal going forward uh, enables companies to go ahead and more effectively tell their story directly. So you're able to build up a following in the public markets. Now, that raises an interesting question, right? Because uh, through the traditional IPO, we've got a multi-day book build that's really generated with the input of orders from hundreds of investors. And so you've got investors that are sort of voting with their checkbooks leading up to their ultimate pricing. Whereas with the SPACs, you're going on almost a campaign to ensure that those folks stay in the mix uh, once the deal closes. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yes, um, with the one added twist in, in the biotech space. So in SPACs that are not biotech focused, they're going to have a variety of investors in there, some of which might be natural holders of whatever the SPAC acquires, and some of which will not be. In biotech SPACs, a little bit different because on day one, you know with a high degree of confidence that a biotech SPAC is going to acquire biotech assets. So on the front end of the SPAC's IPO, you have investors who want to actually own biotech. Um, and so uh, one, so, so you already had that level of engagement. I think that raises an, the interesting dynamic <clears throat> that that um, we touched on before and the um, tremendous momentum in the biotech IPO market really creates a limited opportunity set for institutional investors to gain uh, ownership in size. You know, biotech IPOs tend to be smaller deals. Uh, there's obviously, you know, a, a very concentrated group of institutional investors uh, who, you know, by and large get allocated uh, either, again, crossover positions, anchor positions in those IPOs. Um, and the pipe process here, because the uh, wall cross process sort of limits the number of institutional investors uh, that you'll engage with gives a much higher sort of hit ratio or opportunity uh, for uh, anchor ownership to the folks who manage to to get wall crossed and be part of that pipe process and, and value validation. And so, you know, these elements uh, of the SPAC process, uh, valuation certainty that Amir touched on uh, before, uh, the unique aspects of marketing to really what is a hand-selected group of institutional investors for the value validation in the pipe rather than that broader uh, group of institutional investors in an IPO process can really have um, tremendous fundamental um, effects on the outcome uh, of a IPO versus a SPAC process for, for individual companies. Those are all great points. You know, Jason, one question that we get from CEOs, management teams broadly across the board is, you know, what it takes to become a successful IPO candidate and then what it takes to be a successful SPAC. And frankly, I think we may have to disabuse people of the fact that the, the bar, the threshold of success is not necessarily lower uh, on the SPAC side, because you know some companies will say, "Well, I'm not ready for an IPO," but I, I'm hearing a lot about these SPACs. So, can you sort of speak to what it takes to be successful? Sure, I do think it's an important consideration that the best SPAC candidates are likely good IPO candidates as well. I think that 
underpinning is ex extremely important to note because in, in biotech, it's less about, as we know, with respect to public market viability, stage of development, uh, it's more about quality of science, uh, path to proof of concept, uh, ultimate market opportunity, uh, third-party validation, et cetera. So I think those criteria are important to consider irrespective of the path a company chooses. Um, the other benefits are the ones that I would suggest that companies focus on, i.e. time to market, valuation validation, um, particularly in a market that's as crowded as it is. But ultimately, you're right, Noel, I think um, you know, most companies, um, if they're not ready to be public, uh, most likely won't be particularly attractive candidates for a SPAC transaction. I'm sure Amir and I are probably uh, both uh, trigger happy on our mute buttons right now, but the SPAC is not a panacea uh, is, a, is a common refrain that you'll hear from both of us. You know, very often we hear from partners of ours you know, I have a company that's looking at the SPAC market, and you know, Jason sort of touched upon this. I have a company that's looking at these deals getting done in the SPAC world. They're probably a couple of years away from being IPO ready, but should we, you know, should we have a discussion? <laughs> like, you know, they'll be public in six months if they go down the SPAC route successfully. So if, if they're really, you know, much further out from a preparedness perspective, you know, it's probably not a route they want to be um, necessarily thinking about. Always good to talk about and always good to keep op options open. Um, but, you know, I think Jason really highlights the, the critical point, which is, you know, the company should really, by and large, be ready for um, the public markets in, in most aspects of, of their, their business. So, great points. I've always been a proponent of optionality yields the best result at the end of the day. And from what I'm hearing from all three of you, it seems that we're perhaps seeing the emergence of a, a tri-path you know, process as opposed to the typical dual paths of IPO and M&A that we used to have before. Is there now like a third fork in the road? Absolutely. And uh, the way we think about it as well is you, know, you, have, you have multiple ways of becoming uh, public. Um, and they have multiple exit options. Uh, if it's a sponsor-owned asset and they want to exit, they, of course, have the regular IPO market, they have an outright sale, uh, and they also have um, the SPAC option. If it's a company focused solely on going public, and uh, this may not necessarily apply to biotech companies, but more broadly, you now have regular way IPO, SPAC option, and a direct listing. And having options is always a great thing. So are these... SPACs here to stay? Is this a flash in the pan? Is this just, you know, are we seeing sort of the, the peak of one wave that'll kind of crest back down and something else will come to replace it? Or, you know, what do you all think? That's a great question. And what I would say is this, uh, just given the longevity of SPACs, the product itself continues to evolve to make it better for not only the sponsors of SPACs, but also for companies looking to merge into SPACs, but also for public investors. Um, is it perfect? No, I think the product is going to continue to evolve. We're going to have high caliber, high quality sponsors continue to come out and want to improve it and reduce some of the friction costs. And it is because of that, I think it's going to go ahead and stay. Is it going to stay at this incredible pace that we've, we've been witnessing? That I don't know. I don't, unfortunately, I wish I had a crystal ball to be able to tell that whether the pace will continue or not. But we do think it is going to go ahead and stay 
and it is a very attractive tool um, uh, for certain situations, and, uh, and it's an incredible tool given how flexible it can be. I can add to what Amir said. I think, I think you know, the technological advances are clearly going to be a driver, uh, as is M&A. I don't think we could stress that enough. I would also just remind folks, you know, in the last two years, we issued more uh, SPAC IPO volume on a dollar basis than in the history of the market combined, right? It was just a, a stunning pace of issuance. Uh, and in the first six weeks of this year, we're averaging roughly a billion dollars of SPAC IPOs a day. So we're continuing on an incredible pace. But I would also keep in mind, you know, to the to the point about crystal balls, I would keep in mind for folks that of this issuance that we talk about, these record levels of issuance, SPAC market 2.0, 3.0, wherever we think we are, you know, this this market, the publicly traded SPACs outstanding. 88% of them are less than six months old and have 24 months within which to make an acquisition. Now, acquisitions are happening much more rapidly than they ever have in history. I think historically, SPACs took roughly 13 months to make an acquisition. The pace right now is more like six to seven months on average, but this is an exceptionally young market. Uh, and so the, I think the most formative chapters in the history of the SPAC market are likely to be written in the next 18 months. You know, whether those chapters are a comedy, a drama, a thriller, I think, you know, that remains to be seen. But certainly uh, there's going to be uh, an incredible market transformation in the types of assets that SPACs acquire, uh, an in increase in the provenance and quality of, of sponsors who continue to embrace the, the power of the vehicle, uh, and hopefully continued high-quality uh, M&A that, that comes out of it. And if we have all of those ingredients come together, I think the market will remain uh, very robust. Uh, whether or not these issuance levels are sustainable, I think that's a big question mark. But uh, certainly, I think the product has really cemented itself as one as a core capital markets tool and really one of the, the three core avenues for, for getting public, whether it be regular way IPO, SPAC IPO or, or direct listing. Great. Um, maybe one question, one last question, and then we'll have to put it maybe in a different order, but is, is the growth in just SPAC offerings a reflection of capital getting ahead of available companies to invest in? I think, look, the, the explosion in SPAC IPO issuance really happened to coincide, not coincidentally, with, with – uh, obviously COVID, right? And, and I think a realization that the number of publicly traded companies has been more than cut in half in the last 10 years. Um, there, the world, and just given low rates and the broader market backdrop going back now to March of last year, was a wash in capital. Institutional investors obviously don't get compensated for keeping LP capital in, in cash. And so they needed a place to deploy that capital in the market that was perceived as relatively safe. I think we touched on the technical nuances uh, that really set SPACs apart as a, an incredible cash management tool, the downside protection, the call option upside of the warrants. I think Amir mentioned that uh, in a, a previous question. Um, and so that really kicked off 
the beginning of the institutional interest in in SPAC. Couple that with the incredible um, transformation of SPAC sponsors that were embracing the product and the uh, incredible reception of SPAC M&A and the aftermarket performance uh, of, of SPAC M&A, the alpha generation on the pipe opportunities that I mentioned earlier, you know, all of this comes together to really highlight the product um, as one that is uh, an incredible place to deploy capital. And maybe, maybe just to close, Noel, looking at the question through the, the biotech lens specifically, um, my guess is, is that uh, the pace of new life science SPAC formation will probably slow a bit as the year progresses. We do expect the IPO calendar, in contrast, to be very heavy. So that balance will likely change a bit as the year progresses. Um, but I think to the broader question, you know, certainly feels like um, there's still a good deal of interest on the investor side around new SPACs and the transactions we're seeing uh, on the back end up to this point seem to be quite well received with successful SPAC, uh, excuse me, successful pipes. So I expect uh, activity will continue to be busy on all fronts in the near term. That's a great closing thought. Thank you, Jason, Mike, Amir, for all your insights today. Uh, what else does 2021 have in store for the biotech industry? We'll be keeping track right here on Pathfinders. Until our next episode, thank you all for joining us. If there are any areas that we discussed that you'd like more information on, please don't hesitate to contact us directly for more in-depth discussion or visit our website for further insights. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com disclosure.